Thanks for joining us today on the Port City Church Podcast. With multiple campuses existing within Southeastern North Carolina, our mission is to be helpful and hopeful as we reach people and help them walk with God. To learn more about the heart behind our church, we encourage you to visit us at portcity.church. Good morning again. It's great to welcome all of our campuses and a lot of folks who are watching uh, online. So we're glad you guys uh, are here with us um, today as we continue our series uh, called It's Broke. And uh, the, the whole idea, and, and this is just, you know, is how do we, you and I, learn how to deal or live in a world that is broken, uh, particularly when it doesn't appear that it's going to be less broken. Now, I assume that everyone here at some level recognizes um, that, that our world uh, is, has some issues, some problems. It's, it's broken. You can, like, most of your you know, Facebook feeds or Instagram feeds or Twitter feeds or local headlines or national headlines, just kind of review. You don't have to look very far to kind of get a sense that, hey, the world is broken. And our, and our exploration in this year uh, is to kind of, uh, not to kind of, but to learn how it is that we can find a real deep sense of peace, even if the world doesn't get less broken than it is. I think a lot of us subtly, we have this sense of hope that, when the world gets better, we'll feel better. And so we work hard to kind of create and to make sure that our corner of the world and, and making sure that things are better in our world, that we sort of put our stock, or our faith, or our trust that we will then feel better. And I want for us to have a way, a, a frame of reference that allows us to live as those who have an unshakable hope, a deep sense of peace, and a, a prevailing a sense of, of joy, right? Even if the world doesn't get less broken than it is. So that's what we've been talking about um, last week and what we're going to talk about the next couple weeks. So I want to ask you a question is how is it that you deal with brokenness? How do you deal with it? Um, are you a fixer? Right? Do you like always, whenever something's happened, you're just like, you're the peacemaker. You're the one who goes and you try to fix everything and fix everybody. And you spend all your energy and effort trying to make sure that everybody's okay. And you, some of you just wear yourselves out doing that. Um, are you a complainer? Do you just sort of complain uh, about everything that's around you and long for the way things were, or whatever it might be for you? Or are you a critic? Have you just become a critic of all that's wrong in the world? There's actually a whole industry built on being a critic of what's wrong in the world, which is not super helpful. Or perhaps when you see broken things, you pass out, like me. So this is really interesting. About uh, probably uh, 14, 15 years ago, I got a phone call. I was at a coffee meeting with uh, with some folks, and I got a, a call from my wife, and she worked at the school where my daughter attended, and she said, Mike, um, I need you uh, now, which is very nice when your wife calls you and tells you she needs you. I'm like, okay, yeah, this is good, but this is not the right time. And so she says, I need you now, and I, and she, I could tell there's a little bit of panic in her voice, and she said, Michaela, who was in the first grade, our youngest daughter, had fallen off the monkey bars, and she had broken her arm, and she needed me because her arm was broke, like she used the phrase, it's broke. And so I began, well, there's a picture of her right there. Uh, how cute is she? That's the part you go, aw. And so um, she broke her arm, and Julie wanted me to come and attend to this. Now, I'm like a medical wimp. Like, I'm, I, like, I have friends who, are, who take you know, like, from the church, and I go, you know, the doctor or whatever, and they know it's me. They're like getting the butterfly needles out and the kids, you know, like when I had surgery, they did the kids IV for me to get it started. And they're so kind to me because then I'll just pass out. It takes me a lot to do any of that. And so the fact that I'm needed, so I'm like holding my breath, trying to go in there and be like the man, be like good, be like, you know, something that, you know, the rock for my family. Well, Michaela's got a broken arm. What they do is to fix her broken arm, they don't actually fix it. 
they sat it. And if you've done this, they brought her in there, and I mean, she was so tough and so brave. And she brings it in there, and they put her up, and the, the doctor was so great. They put her in these little, they, they hold their fingers. Have you seen this? And it holds her hand, so just the grab, some of you are already cringing. And then they just, you know, and she's looking at me going, Dad, can you stop this? I'm like, nope, this is, this is, this is you know, you're, this is what it's going to be. And she pulls it, and it, you know, she, oh, and then it goes back into place. And they put it in that cute little pink cast that you saw. And the cute little pink cast has a point, right? But it also uh, creates some tension because you're not only like, um, you know, if it doesn't hurt anymore, you're still reminded that it's broken uh, because you got this cast on your arm. You have to pay attention to things. You can't do things the way you once did them because tying your shoe is difficult or taking a shower is difficult or all the things that you would do normally are all difficult because of the broken things. It requires a sense of care and attentiveness. And you have to acknowledge that things aren't the way that they were. You can complain about your cast, but it doesn't change the fact that it's on. But there's something uh, th that's actually important as we are sort of adjusting to doing things differently, to paying attention to things a little differently. What we know about Michaela's arm is that healing was happening. But it was just happening in ways that she could not see or we could not see. It was underneath some things. And I think this is really our posture to learn to navigate the brokenness. A lot of us are trying to fix it. We need to learn how to navigate it. How to understand and how to, how to say, how do we learn how to deal in a world that is broken without the pressure to fix it? Believing and trusting that there is something happening, some healing and some redemption that's happening that we can't quite see. And we've been talking about this, and I'm trying to frame this in connection with the gospel, which is the good news of Jesus Christ, his, uh, his uh, birth, his life, his death, and his resurrection to save sinners and to establish his kingdom. And I've never quite considered this the way that I'm going to talk about it today. But the way, the thing that God did for us on the cross in his son Jesus to save us from our sin was he extended forgiveness. He made forgiveness available to us. And a lot of us know this. And you still have this sense that it's sort of a precarious thing that forgiveness is only as powerful as your last mistake or your last sin. And so you're always hesitant, and your prayers of confession, we talked about this last week, your prayers of confession are even those sense that we're trying to pry something out of God's hands that he doesn't really want to give us instead of stepping back into something that has already been done. So it's a really subtle way to think about this. Tomorrow is MLK Day, and I assume all of you know that, celebrating the life and the legacy of Martin Luther King, and I hope that you take some time, some opportunities to consider. It's been a key part of my faith journey over the last seven or eight years uh, probably longer than that, but particularly intentionally the last seven or eight years to really try and understand and learn what racial reconciliation is about, how the church plays and becomes an integral part in that. It's really interesting that it was so involved in the civil rights, particularly from the African-American church uh, all in, in throughout our history. And so I've been reading a lot on this and um, you know, I follow people on Instagram that help me that aren't just uh, flamethrowers, but are really insightful and helpful. And there's a lot of places like that. The AND Campaign, Esau McCauley, uh, the Equal Justice Initiative are all places you can go and learn about this. So every time, you know, and I, I try to read widely and read African-American authors so that I can get a sense of the theological contribution and things that are just often overlooked. Uh, and, and especially in my world, in the world that I grew up in. So this has been a really rich experience for me. And part of the discipline of MLK is to read uh, his stuff. And uh, last night I was in bed and I was reading uh, letters from a Birmingham jail. And when you read what he was experiencing, the fire hoses and the dogs and the, 
the brutality and the, the, the things that were said to him and those who were moving in uh, to Birmingham, uh, you, 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 it just, it's, it's, it's almost unbelievable. And so uh, this morning I was actually, as pointed out, I was reading this, and this is from his speech given years before that in 1957 in a message, that, a speech that he gave called Love Your Enemies. Uh, he says this, and this is from Martin Luther King. We must develop and maintain a capacity to forgive. He who is devoid of the power to forgive is devoid of the power to love. There is some good in the worst of us and some evil in the best of us. And when we discover this, we are less prone to hate our enemies. And all of this flows from this sense that to understand forgiveness is to be empowered to love. And so it brings us this idea, this is what God came to do for us, that enables us to navigate this broken world in perhaps a slightly different way, without the pressure to constantly solve every problem, but rather to extend ourselves for the work of God's redemptive purposes. And this is what we have to get a vision for. And this requires us to see something underneath, to see something that perhaps we can't see, which God gives us this gift of faith, to walk by faith and not by sight. We have to trust something else other than our own efforts and other than our own capacity to fix and solve and bring. We have to learn how to walk as those who trust God. And we're gonna talk about that and kind of make that connection uh, today. Uh, last week, part of the thing we talked about was this idea of sin. We introduced and said so we're going to reflect and talk about sin to start a new year, which is a great way to start the new year. And what we said was we want to take our sins seriously because there is a trajectory to it. Part of the thing in starting a new year isn't just that you resolve not to do things that you haven't done before. In fact, we pick words here, you know that. But it's, it's not just to not do things. It's to recognize that all the things that we give latitude and a foothold in our minds and our words and our actions have a trajectory to them. They're not benign. They don't just, it doesn't happen at a time and space and then disappear, magically disappear. It actually carries over and has consequence and effect on the people around us, the people who matter to us, the way we interact with the world around us. There's a trajectory to it. We talked about it last week. But also, and I've been reflecting on this this past week, it was a little bit kind of, I was, it was unexpected. But that also when we begin to take our sins seriously, and I don't mean by trying to feel more guilty about it. I mean by taking seriously what has happened. What we find is that there is, we begin to discover a, a beauty to forgiveness. When we take our sins seriously, we'll learn to see a sense of beauty uh, in forgiveness. That it becomes a condition in which we have been restored to the relationship for which we have been intended and from which everything else flows. When we talk about sin, sin entered into the world and it broke the relationship for which we have been made for. Make no mistake about it. That sin is first and foremost a trust issue. It is broken trust that broke a relationship. Our broken relationship with God the Father, with God himself, then translated or caused a sense of brokenness or hesitation and brokenness in our own hearts, in our relationship with others, and also our relationship with our place in this world and with creation. And so we worked to get a definition of sin, and I gave you this last week, and this is my definition of sin uh, from last week. That sin, and then we'll put this on the screen, is depending upon anything or trusting anything other than God as the source of our identity our sufficiency, and our life. 
Here comes the snow. <laughs> so we're going to have to like focus as that kind of gets louder. We'll just have to dig in. Um, but it's, it's a dependency thing. So if you think about this, what we recognize is that when we confess sin or this idea of confession, it's to recognize the reality that you and I often trust all sorts of other things for our sufficiency, you know, for, for our life and for our identity. And so what happens in the fall is a couple of things that are worth noting. Number one, when it, when it breaks relationship with ourselves, there's a fundamental disintegration of who we are. It's not a disintegration in terms of pulverized into nothingness. It's that we are fragmented and pulled apart. There's an identity issue. There's a way of relating issues. Some of us, and you know this, that you have a, an image that people see you as, as, as work. The way in which you are at work is different than the way you are with another group of people at home or the way you are in another group of people, perhaps at church. I know none of us would do that, but that we know people who do. They're different. Their behavior changes. Their values change. But they interact with people changes. And what this is, this is just evidence that there's a disintegration. The longing for integrity, when we talk about integrity, isn't just to be a person of character that can be dependent on it. That is it. But integrity literally means whole. It's that, that you aren't fragmented. You're, you're there, there's a sense of self and wholeness to who you are. So, the sin, so sin introduced this sort of disintegration in our own hearts. Where now we have to project and manage an image depending on what we need done because we are trusting those things for our identity and for our sufficiency, and for our life. There's also a disorientation. We are sort of, we're not sort of, we are. We are disoriented to the way in which we are intended to live. It doesn't always, it's hard to find a true north. So we're often chasing careers, or relationship, or, or thrills, or some of you, it's relationships or sex or escape. And we're, we're, because a, we don't have a sense of orientation to the way that we're supposed to be and live and relate and live in this world. And this is, this is all the root of this distrust of it coming from God. And this is the separation that forgiveness came to correct, to resolve, to redeem. And the third is that we experience a sense of deformation, that we aren't as we want to be or ought to be. We're, we're, we, don't, we don't bear the image that we think we ought to, so therefore we have to manage it in a thousand different ways. I was at a, I do from time to time um, groups and, and, and business leaders and such, and I was doing a, um, a a seminar for a group of executives, and they were all um, very successful, very decisive, you know, were sort of the integral part of this large company. We were in there, and I was going through, and we do this thing, and I use my one word as kind of a fodder for it, and we were talking about this, and one of the questions that I asked, and we were talking about their successes and all the things they had done, and people listed them out, the things they were proud of about themselves, et cetera, and then I asked them this question. I said, when you look in the mirror, do you like the person that you have become? When you look in the mirror, do you like who you have become? I remember one of the guys sitting there who was probably one of the most like together. I mean, you could tell he was in charge and got things done. And we asked that question, it was almost immediately tears came to his eyes. And what he realized is for all the things that he had done and produced and even the things that he had done on behalf of the people who he employed, 
When he looked in the mirror, something was misshapen about him. He had become someone he didn't want to be. You know, this, this is the trajectory of sin. It's the things that happened to us in this reality and uh, what caused or what set the world in its motion. So when I think about uh, confession and the solution or the way we receive and, and, and live in forgiveness is this gift of confession. And so I tried to go and I've looked and there's not a lot of crisp definitions. So I tried to write one and I'll put this up on the board and you can, on the screen and you can um, take a picture of it. Because I want for us to see confession is, is, is more than just feeling badly about your list. I want for confession to be freeing, deeply freeing and ultimately healing. Because it, it rids us or it keeps us from concealing and hiding and justifying. And therefore it frees us to actually experience life the way we were intended to. So here's the definition. Confession is sharing or refusing to conceal any longer. Our deepest distrust, our misdeeds, and our attitudes with God, to, to, to share them with God and with trusted others so we may experience his ready forgiveness and healing and dwell freely in relationship with God and with one another. That's the restorative aspect, that there's a freedom when you are known and deeply known and able to live in this way. It's, it's to acknowledge and to trust God and his formative work in our lives. But there's something that has to happen in us. There's an activity to it, and that's what I want to address in our final few minutes um, together. Genesis chapter 3, uh, verse 6, it says this, and this is where we looked at last week. And I want to take and compare this to uh, kind of the teaching or the essence of the New Testament. But Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, this is the, the essence of the fall. This is what the woman saw uh, when the serpent uh, uh, teased her or deceived her. And said, so when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree, and there's three things here, was good for food, was pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for wisdom, she took and she ate from it, and then she gave it to her husband, and the whole thing happened. As I began to think about this, what I noticed is that there was a sense that this, this temptation um, drew on an appetite. It's good for food. There's something inside of us that wants this. That it was, it was appealing to our desires. It awakened something in us that causes what we want. And then it kind of offered this, this sort of promise that this is what we were looking for in the first place. This idea uses the good for food. It was pleasing to the eyes. It appealed to us in a, in a, in a, aesthetic way in a sort of alluring way and then it held this promise that oh now we've got what we were looking for and and if you think about what began to happen it, it what sin did it didn't just go oh that that was a problem and now God's mad what that did is it ushered in a rule it ushered in a rule a a governing system this is how John describes it uh, in 1 John's letter at the very end of the Bible, 1 John chapter 2, he says this, that for everything in the world, and then he lists off three things, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life or the pride of life, these things come from the world and not from the Father. So he sets up this tension point that there's something that has happened that has separated us, that we are now governed by these things, that now what we end up thinking is rather than desires sort of being a part of the human experience that serve the purposes 
that God has for us, they become the purpose. Satisfying desires becomes the purpose. It becomes the thing that you chase. It becomes the governing thing. And when Paul is talking about this, later on we're going to look at this whole section in a series coming up in a couple of months. Um, but Ephesians chapter 4, he says, you know, this is, this is the way we live. But you didn't learn this way. And here's how he writes this in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 20. Starting in verse 20. That, however, is not how you learned, uh, not the way of life that you have learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to this former way of life, to put off your old self, this pre-forgiven life, to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by what? Read it out loud. Deceitful desires. Does anybody have a deceitful desire? Like, do you have something that you like legit want to do and you know that the trajectory of it is not good or healthy or gonna lead to anything that's helpful? Anybody got that? Besides me and the, okay, there's like four of us. Like, but the whole idea is it's deceitful. There is a disorientation. There's a disorientation the way you chase success and money and sexuality. There's a disorientation to these things. And the trajectory is that we end up becoming someone that we didn't intend to become. Something happens, it shapes us. It's because we are trusting in other things or rather we are not trusting God for identity and sufficiency and the life that he intends for us to live. This is the wickedness of sin. It's not about your list. It's not about your list. So here's how we navigate. This is, this is how I think. Um, and, and again, there's, a, there's a good, uh, lots of of evidence, I want to try to give you something simple we can hold on to and grab. Because what I want to talk about is how do we engage in leveraging what has happened to us so that it translates into our lives, other than you're just going to try to do better. What forgiveness is, just as though the fall was an event, it was a condition, and it's a has a trajectory, forgiveness operates in the sort of the twist or the flip of those ways. So that forgiveness was an event. When Jesus died on the cross, he said, it is finished. He, he gave or made available forgiveness to all mankind, to all who would believe in him, to them he would give them the right to become children of God, who would receive and trust in the sacrifice. We would be forgiven. But forgiveness is also a condition. It is a condition. It is the way of life inside of the rule of God's love. We live as people who don't owe one another anything else. Can this be taken advantage of? Of course it can. But it is to misunderstand or to misappropriate it if you take advantage of it. It's, it's, to, it's, it's sin again. If I take, your, if I take advantage of you, that, that's, that's a problem. So we're learning how to do this. We're learning, this is why this, because that's a, that's, a, that's a disorientation. Oh, I can take your goodness and use it for my advantage. That's more of this over here. Those are all things that come from the world, not from the rule of the Father. So we've got, we've got to get our, our heads around this. He goes on, and look at what he says at the end of uh, this, this passage. Verse 23, chapter four of Ephesians. He says, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, what created how? You can say it out loud. To be like God, created in holiness or in righteousness and in holiness. Do you notice something about this? 
If you remember from last week, I know it's a long time. Seven days is a long time. But do you remember the essence of the temptation that the serpent made to Eve? He said, did God really tell you not to eat of these trees? And she says, oh, no, he did. And he said, no, the reason God's holding back is because he knows that when you eat this, you will be like him. And he appealed to a desire that said to be like God is to be in control and to get your way. And said the image of God isn't about control and getting your way. It's about the overflow of who he is and his love. And we began to sort of forsake and take something in our own that meant something different. And so what he's saying here is that what the whole thing we're doing is we are being forgiveness is undoing all of this to bring us back to the image for which we have, in which we have been created, and the purposes for which we have been created. This is what is happening to you. So here's, here's how it works in like three minutes. Disintegration, five minutes. Disintegration. Disintegration, for this to be shaped or changed in you, is really an act or a, an act of what I would consider is restoration. We are being remade, renewed, all the languages around this. That this, this we, are, we are becoming, we are learning how to live as whole people, wholehearted. And this is, this is where we have to learn how to live in the freedom of forgiveness and then to live in the freedom that comes from forgiving others. I know it's really hard. It's why the standard that God has given to us of forgiveness is not forgive as to the degree that someone has wronged you, it's forgive as you have been forgiven in Christ Jesus, which is this sweeping thing. The forgiveness that God gives us awakens something in us. It brings us a sense of wholeness, to learn to receive that, to learn. It's a process. But this is where the act, I think, it's the work, the practice of confession, and it's practice of confession and repentance. Because this is where we are reoriented. This is where we begin to deal with this. Repentance, you know what repentance literally means? Repentance means to return, to turn, to return. Disorientation is really the act or the practice in which we remain returned to the way in which we have been created to live. We live and we focus and we pursue this way. This is frankly why I pick a word. Because what I have found is me trying to manage my behavior by feeling bad and keeping lists is impossible. And it is maddening. And when I do really, really well, I think I'm better than someone. And when I do really, really bad, I feel like I'm not worth anything at all. But when you pick a word, what you're doing is you're saying, oh, now I don't have to try and do better or promise to do more. I just have to reorient myself. And what I've found is being able to shift my view is a whole lot easier to be able to keep all these crazy promises that I make. And what you'll find is, and this is really the power, this is the work, I think, of worship. You want to reorient your way of life to the way of Jesus? Fix your eyes on him. See him. Seek him. Pursue him. I know that a lot of us, we just don't, we come in, and listen, I'm grateful for our teams we want to reorient ourselves, and we, we want that to happen. But this isn't a once-a-week thing. 
We have to have places and spaces in our lives to practice confession, repentance, and worship. Just sort of a shameless plug, the personal retreat walks you through all of these things. Because we want to take time, we want to do this together. That's why we're calling this Mush Month, because a lot, I haven't finished mine. I've done it once, I'm going through it again. It's very rich, it leads us through all these prayers. But it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's the work of worship, is to reorient ourselves. And then this last one, and I don't have an R word for it. Shame on me, right? What, no preacher worth his salt doesn't alliterate stuff. Is, is really, this is why spiritual formation matters. You and I being reshaped into the image that we have been remade into. We have been returned and restored to. Now we're having to be shaped. We're having to become what we already are. That's the way you would think about this. Dallas Willard says this. He's one of my heroes, as you probably can tell. But he says, spiritual formation is the only human, uh, is the ultimate human problem with no human solution. It doesn't happen because of your willpower. It happens because you submit yourselves and avail yourselves to the work of the Holy Spirit in your life, shaping and forming you and causing you to become. And this, I believe, is the practice of obedience. I don't know if you've ever thought of obedience as practice or not. I grew up, my mom said, do this, and you did it. That was the end of it. You didn't practice it, you just did it. But what you're doing is you're learning something. You're learning the voice can be trusted. When mom says, do this, or dad says, do this, and you do that, you realize, oh, their voice is trustworthy. And they're not just trying to get you to comply, they're trying to help you learn how to trust. At least that's the idea. And obedience is the same way. When Jesus said, whoever loves me, keeps my commandments, obeys me, he wasn't wasn't whining. You don't ever obey me, therefore you must not love me. He wasn't whining. He was telling us, when you understand one thing, the other thing comes. And to obey, to obey is, is what we have to practice. What are the things that God is asking of you? What are the things that you need to trust in him? You know, for the, when I was saying this, what is the connection of forgiveness and obedience? Forgiveness is what makes us right with God. It restores us to the trust that was broken in the fall. And people who trust obey. Like that's, that's just how simple it is. But you've got to get this out of the category of now I'll promise to do better. So I want to give you a couple of examples from my own life uh, where there's still a lot of work being done and to be done. You can ask anybody who knows me well. Uh, I'm not using uh, very many anger uh, illustrations because those are still the most uh, difficult to deal with. But there is growth. There is shaping. There is change. I'm not the same person that I was 15 years ago, 10 years ago, 5 years ago. But it was these small acts of obedience that became declarations of trust and not promises not to do something anymore. And this is really important. Most of us think that our obedience is I'm not gonna do what I was doing anymore or I promise I'll do this from here on out. And you've gotta say, God, I'm trusting you. It's a restoration of trust. 
But it was learning, reading the scriptures, and hearing the invitation to take every thought captive and to make it obedient to Jesus Christ was for me to take seriously my thoughts so as not to be driven by whatever popped into my mind. Whether it was an outburst of anger towards another person or a demeaning thought or just a, I want to get the heck out of here. I could take that thought captive. I could hold it up and say, God, this is what I think and this is what I see and this is what I want in this moment. But I'm going to take it captive and I'm going to make it obedient to you and see how that I'm going to trust you with what you say. And you know what? It took about a, about, I don't know, three or four days and it was fixed. It was all better. That was like 15 years of like wrestling and wrangling and God can this be and how can I trust you? But it was about obeying God in my thought life. It was about learning to steward my eyes. Learning to steward my eyes that where I place my attention, what I give, you know, what catches my eye will eventually capture my heart. And I get a say in that. A lot of us are just, we, we, we use our eyes to just mindlessly get away from the world or we use our eyes to fix on things that just only buttress our position or our view. There's a whole industry of pornography, right, that just fixes your eyes. It just sabotages you to think about people and women and sex in ways that will, that you talk about deceitful desires, it just, it just fans those flames. And here's the thing, you think anybody in the world cares about you being a good steward of your eyes, right? They're going to try to sell you everything. And you just got to decide how seriously are you, how serious are you about where you put your face, right? What you give your attention to. These are all small acts of obedience and the dividends are unbelievable. I remember I was reading Psalm 101, it says, Lord, it's a, it's a, the psalmist says, I will, I will honor you with the integrity within my own world or my own home. And I will set no worthless thing before my eyes. Put that on your phone before you open it up. Or your computer, your sunglasses or wherever it is that you hang out. Learning to pay attention to how I am when no one else knows. Ah, Y'all could have done without that one, couldn't you? Who are you? Like, what do you think about? What do you long for? How do you wrestle with those places where what you long for, you know isn't who you're called to be? Like, it's those little acts to go, God, this is what I want. I'm going to confess this. This is displaced trust. Can I trust you for something? And when you're in the middle of that, let me tell you, the Bible isn't appealing to you. Like people think, oh, you just want to read them. No, there are times I'm like, no, I actually want to do this, and I'm going to, I'm going to go and try to get my face before God and try to seek him and try to, try to so, that, so that I become the kind of person that I'm intended to be. You know, learning how to be obedient with money, to give and to be generous instead of thinking that I just say, you know, I don't have time to get into that, but just, there, there's, there's ways in which I knew that my relationship with money was so unhealthy. And I bought into a lot of lies to try and justify my relationship until I really got serious to God, this is what you're asking. And these really, really, really small acts of obedience just, just did something. You know what they do? 
they reform you. They shape you. They change you. And so the way I want to close our time is reading this prayer from the repersonal retreat. And then we're going to close with a, with a song that we sang earlier. And I want us to do this as a declaration. But are there places where maybe you need to take God seriously, his way seriously, in your attentiveness, in your eyes, in your thoughts, in some of the really internal places? Are there places where you find it difficult to trust? Are there steps that you need to take that you're afraid or you are unsure? You know, get around some people who you know and trust and like wrestle it out with God and with one another. It's a, it's a powerful thing. So here's the prayer from the person which I want to read this, read this over you. Then we're going to sing and declare that great is thy faithfulness. And for some of you, I, want, I hope that God will bring to mind the reality that he has been, that you have found him to be faithful. In those places where I've been obedient, I have found them to be faithful. And I hope that you can have that testimony as well. Others of you, that's like a longing. Because just imagine if on the other side of you, this desire that's been getting the best of you, if on the other side of that wasn't just one more, God, I can't believe I did that again. But if you trusted God and he actually did something or formed something or shaped something in you, like what would that be like for you and for the people around you if you began to become just a little bit more closely formed to the image in which you've been created? How powerful would that be for you? That's what we're made for, right? So you can read it along as it'll be on the screens. Lord, let not my obedience come from duty or drudgery or obligation, but instead may obedience become an instinctive act of trust, an offering of gratitude, a declaration that your ways are good and right and true. Would you lead me out of my comfort zone where faith is needed? Would you change me and mold me into the person that you have called me and created me to be. I won't become who you've created by observation, but by following and by trusting, by obeying. Open my eyes to the opportunities that await my obedience, my faith. Keep me curious and humble. Let me bring my whole self into every place and use me to bring God's kingdom in every moment. That your image might be reflected in the ordinary moments with each act of faith. Let me be reminded that giving myself away is the most powerful way to live. Father, I thank you that in your son Jesus, we have the forgiveness of sins. <laughs> and in forgiveness, we are reconciled to the relationship that becomes the source of our identity, of all sufficiency, and all of life. God, would you meet us in this moment? And will we find you faithful on the foundation that is your son, Jesus Christ. And it is in his name we pray and confess him as our king. Why don't you stand as we close together?